Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, thank you first to Pastor Pollock. You can say thank you to your husband uh, for inviting me to come here. And uh, I have to say the, the welcome that I have received today has been 10 out of 10. Okay, the people that have welcomed me, I've been going to different churches for something like 45 years and it didn't come much better than that. And uh, your host, I'm going to embarrass her now. I'm giving Rebecca absolutely 10 out of 10. She gave me an excellent welcome. And what I'm saying is if you welcome the visiting preachers like you've welcomed me, you go a long way. So thank you for that. And I trust that all of us will be uh, blessed uh, within the next half an hour as we worship God together. Ken, you're no longer a Trinitarian, are you? Don't you get a goal of these days? Usually, okay. And if I remember correctly, last time that I was here, which was last year, I thought I spoke from your left-hand side, so you changed things? Hopefully not to confuse me. <laughs> okay, well, usually my wife Kerry goes with me wherever I go, uh, but she had to take the lesson today, the young people's lesson, so she left me on my own. So you're going to take it easy on me, aren't you? <laughs> okay, well, there's the sermon title, Heaven Came Down. Now, next time you and I go swimming, if we could understand the language of the sea creatures, I'm sure that none of them would say, oh, it's pretty wet down here. I've got water above me. I've got water below me. There's water on either side. I'm saturated in this stuff. Get me out of here. They feel quite at home living in the sea. Whereas you and I don't feel quite as comfortable living in a land of violence, super stress, fear, anxiety, and the inevitable sickness and death. We live in a world of hurry, worry, and bury. And the question is, is there a way out for our strugglers or are we stuck in this predicament with no end in sight you remember the Israelites when they were under bondage in Egypt felt like that all they did was make bricks all day and you know how they made bricks don't you they'll get the dirt they'll mix it up with water then they'll put straw and then they'll put that mixture into a mould and let it dry in the hot sun. The next thing, they'll do exactly the same over and over again. Get some dirt, get some water, mix it with straw, put it in a mould, let it dry in the hot Egyptian sun, and they'll do the day in, day out. And uh, for many of them, of course, that was just a normal part of life. You know, my grandfather was a slave, my father was a slave, I'm a slave, my children uh, are both slaves. And so, the work was repetitive, meaningless, and back-breaking work. 
under the hot Egyptian sun. And then, of course, Pharaoh comes along, and you know what he said? You know this text very well. You are to continue to make bricks. So if you made 10 bricks an hour before, you are now not going to be given any straw, and you still need to make 10 bricks today. And it couldn't have made much sense to the Israelites, this order that you see on the screen. They're on a treadmill going nowhere. And the important thing for me here is that life can often, for you and me, seem to be like that. Though we are on a treadmill going nowhere without purpose, it's as though you and I have been asked to make bricks without straw. Everything seems to be harder than what it should be, and ultimately pointless. And like the Israelites of old, we mustn't get into this trap of thinking that all there is today is all there is. The bricks without straw was a clue to the Israelites that they were missing something in life, something that only God could provide. Only God could provide. And when the Israelites allowed God to do his own thing, they realized what they've been missing all along. And you know what that is? Freedom. We go to the next one. No, it's not working. Doesn't like me. Mr. Pring. Are we there? There we are. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. So I have come down to what's the next word? To deliver them, deliver them, deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land where they are to a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course the, uh, the exodus began and you know the story very well and eventually they come to this place where they're surrounded by the sea the Egyptians are running after them the mountains and I read on, on Patriarchs and Prophets 284 the terror they're terrified terror filled the hearts of the people of Israel and when you and I come into that position we would ask similar questions to what they did you remember their questions don't you Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? And it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here. I'm a simple-minded bloke, and to me, the questions make sense. I'd rather serve someone and be a slave than die. But then when I have a look at exactly the same situation from heaven's point of view, I see that my logic doesn't quite make sense. Because God said that he has come down to deliver them, and we are saying we want to go back to slavery, to be whipped, to work all day as bricklayers. And then where does it say in the Bible that God said that he has come down to destroy them? He said he has come down to deliver them, deliver them, deliver them. But they were afraid. 
And you remember, fear came right from the very beginning. When God came, came down to the Garden of Eden and he said to Adam, Adam, where art thou? What did he say? I was afraid. I was afraid. And I hid myself. And since that day, you and I have been afraid. And you, are, you and I are afraid of everything there is to be afraid of. All right? I'm going to put five responses on the screen now from a survey that was conducted amongst Australians and more than 50,000 participated in this survey. Okay? And the question was, what concerns you the most about Australia as a nation? Okay? Listen carefully. Not what concerns you personally, but what concerns you as a nation. So when you have a look at Australia, what concerns you about this great country of ours? I'm going to put the top five responses. Before I do that, anyone would like to have a guess at what one of them might have been? I don't, I don't think I would have got any of them. Maybe one. Maybe one. I was surprised at the survey. Yes, Peter? Invasion. Thank you. Oh, yes. I should have said this. This survey was taken just before COVID came into play. Okay? Just before us. So we, we didn't know anything about coronavirus, never heard of it. Yes, Ken? Terrorism. Terrorism. Thank you. Is that similar to invasion? Okay. Anyone else before I put them up? I wouldn't have got any, I don't think. Maybe one. Going, going. No, not working. Let's go again. I've heard about this many times, but I didn't think it would be in the top five. The next one, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe the next one. Anyone want to have a go? Four to go. <laughs> what concerns you about the nation that you're living in? Peter? Excellent. I would have said unemployment. Peter? Not working. Can you press the down arrow? Oh, there we are. Water. I would have never picked that one. Peter, you're top of the class. <laughs> top of the class. And they didn't tell me what water means, but I would imagine that means not enough rather than the quality. The third one, I might have got this one, maybe, I don't know. And the top two, I wouldn't have any idea. I would have said unemployment, crime. Last go, going, going. What? Oh, man. Ken. Let's go. You know why? No wonder Ken and Peter are sitting next to each other. And the last one, I would have never got this one. There we are, household debt, household debt. Now, what hits me about this is that this was not a religious survey, and I wonder if that was a religious survey, what would we say as a people? I'm guessing the things that would concern us would be death, bad news, 
bad conscience. And speaking of bad conscience, I remember when I was a young lad, I used to go to the both Russian and, Orth and the Greek Orthodox uh, Church for confessions. I was a bad boy, I never confessed anything. And uh, it was a waste of time. Uh, I would think of the smallest thing possible and, uh, and I'd water that down because I didn't want to feel bad in front of the priest. I can't let the priest know that I'm a sinner. And so I remember going to this priest in the Russian Orthodox Church and when I got into to the confession room, uh, the priest said to me, do you pray? Wow, I'm thinking at a million miles an hour, I've come here to confess, not to be interrogated. But anyway, I felt good because I said to the priest, yes, I do. And then he said to me, I thought that would get him off my back. And then he said to me, tell me the prayer that you pray. Wow. <laughs> what kind of a priest is this? But anyway, I had a very good answer because this would get him off my back for sure. And I said, look, I pray in Greek. You will not understand what I'm saying. I had a Greek father, Russian mother. And the priest, man, he blew me out the water. He said, tell me the prayer that you say in Greek. I want to hear it. Wow. So I started to say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name. I said that in Greek. And at the end of our conversation, he said to me, have you had communion? This is near Easter. You must have communion. And I looked at the priest and I said, no. And he said something like, you should, my son. Now, you will not believe this. I know you won't believe it, but I'll say it anyway. Those words had affected me. He blew me out the water. I still remember the earnestness and the yearning with which he said those words. As a teenager, I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner, even though I've never confessed. But when the priest spoke to me, I never felt condemned. And those words had such a deep impact in me, and I know you won't believe it, for the next year, five years, 40 years, I could not forget it. I can't forget it now, even though the impact has been lessened uh, to quite an extent. I saw this priest years later and he looked very elderly. He looked in his 80s, all grey hair, uh, not grey really, white, white, white hair, white as snow. His back was bent like this. His voice very weak, very weak. And he was going around the Russian church three times as is the custom in the Russian church doing well taking the Easter service that priest impressed me no end and you won't believe this I wept over this many times I wept over those words this month this week he had such a deep impression on me and 
This man represented God to me, that priest. He did not know that he would influence a teenager who's almost in his 70th year, who will be there in a few days' time. He did not know. He represented God to me. And when my parents were divorced when I was about four, uh, I never knew my father much at all. If I had a spiritual father, I want a spiritual father like that priest. Bring him on. That's the kind of a spiritual father that I want. So he represented God to me. And what does all that mean? It means what the priest said to me was the gospel. The gospel is there because of its contrasting opposites. You know what that means, don't you? In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, he's speaking to the woman of the world. These are the opposites. In John 3, he speaks to a man. In John 4, he speaks to a woman. In John 3, he speaks to a Jew. John 4, a Samaritan. John 3, he speaks to a man at night. John 4, he speaks to a woman in the middle of the day. John 3, he speaks to a man of impeccable character. John 4, he speaks to a woman despised even by her own kind. What does that mean? It means this, that all the guilty should be punished. We should be locked up. But because of the gospel, all the guilty go free. Free, free, free. And that's what we had on the screen a little while ago where it said God has come down to deliver them, not to slay them in the wilderness, but to deliver them. Now let me ask you an embarrassing question. Uh, this will be an insult to your intelligence, but I'm an old bloke now and well experienced at insulting people. So here we go. That text that I put up on the screen that said God has come down to deliver you, was that in the Old Testament or the New? Of course it was in the Old Testament. Of course. So we're going to put it up on the screen again. I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cries and have come down to deliver them. So this Old Testament text that we've seen before also appears in the New Testament. And what the Bible is saying to me is a greater deliverance is promised in the New Testament. So if I want to find out what this greater deliverance is, where do I find it? When I look for clues, I'm not interested in crumbs. I want the core. I want the cure. And so the crest is the cross. And so, what is the cross? You know, I wasn't brought up in an Adventist home. I became an Adventist when I was a teenager. And I walked through an Adventist church for the first time some 51 years ago and uh, grew up and baptised at Queenstown. So I've been hearing this expression, the cross of Christ, for half a century. But what is it? What, what is this cross that I've been hearing for half a century? Well, if you ask me that question when I was a little kid, 
I would say to you, the cross are two sticks put together. But now, being an old bloke, I want something a little more. Something, something a bit more. You remember when Jesus hung on the cross? There are seven sayings that came from the cross, and you remember what they were, don't you? What was the first one? Father, forgive them. Okay, what's the next one? Heaven is yours. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I just gave you the answer. What was the first thing that Jesus said on the cross? That's it exactly. So as soon as Jesus speaks on that cross, the cross becomes an altar. Father, forgive them are the words that we have from a consecrated high priest who makes intercession for the transgressors. And as soon as the cross becomes an altar, he turns to the penitent thief and he says, heaven is yours, you'll be with me in paradise. At that time, the cross becomes a throne and the king, 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 sits on his throne and he hands out his kingdom. I read uh, an article that I found interesting and it's not coming up on the screen. No, that's not the one. Yeah, that's it. And when you and I feel sinful, shameful, when we experience guilt, we have a bad feeling, the article that I read, which I'll be interested to have a look at a lot more closely, it says that the cross literally means a mercy seat. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, literally meaning a mercy seat. So that's what the cross is. It's an altar. It's a throne. It's a mercy seat. It's a pulpit from where wonderful news is being preached to all the sinners. That's you and me. And then, if we are to believe this scholar that his body was a mercy seat, how can that be? How can that be? So when I look at the cross, if I was at Calvary now and I beheld Jesus hanging on the cross, what would I be seeing? What do I see? Well, I'll tell you what I don't see. I don't see the body of an elite athlete. Someone like Usain Bolt or some other megastar at their peak. Well, Isaiah tells me what I see. That's it. That's what I see. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. So when I have a look at Jesus on the cross, I see a king-sized wound. That's what I see. From his head to his chest, his arms, his feet. King-sized wound. And I see a king-sized wound because our bodies have ministered to sin. And you know how it goes. His hands, you've heard this more than once, his hands were nailed because you and I have used our hands wrongly. 
deceitfully, selfishly, impurely. His feet were spiked because you and I have gone to wrong places. They put a crown of thorns on his head for our wicked thoughts. And as he hangs on that cross, he hears all these terrible things. They mock him. They make fun of him. You know, you and I can have a little cold of the flu and we say, oh, I don't feel bad. We don't want anyone to, to have a go at us. But he hears terrible things. You know why he hears terrible things? Because our ears itch for flattery. And then, of course, they put a spear onto his side, close to his heart, and you know how that story goes. Out comes the blood and the water for all the wrong things that you and I have cherished, for the wrong things that you and I have loved. And yes, man, you and I have loved them. Give me my idols, my idols, my idols. You and I have carried our idols for years and years and years. We have carried idols that have weighed us down and have dominated us. And because you and I have carried those idols, that's why the flogged is back. And then, of course, because of sin, the world has become a cemetery. And then, of course, we have the sinner saviour, the sacrifice, the substitute, the sword. Did you know that the cross for me is a sword? It's shaped like a sword. And God takes that sword, he pierces it on the ground, and what happens when he does that? He pierces our indebtedness to sin. So let me just put the next. There we are. He cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its requirements and took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. He blotted out the charges proved against you the list of his commandments which you had not obeyed, he took this list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. Now, when we read that text, you can read it in whatever Bible translation you like. What is nailed to the cross, folks? Just explain it to me because I wasn't born in this country, so <laughs> my English is not the best. What was nailed to the cross? Our debt to sin. Our sins are gone, finished, out. Note, it doesn't say here or anywhere else in the Bible what I've been hearing for 50 years, that the Sabbath was now to the cross. It doesn't say that anywhere. It's our sin debt that was nailed there. Okay. So, the cross is not only all those things that we have mentioned. A mercy seat, a throne, an altar, a pulpit where wonderful news is preached and you and I need that because none of us are wonderful. None of us are wonderful. We can look good on the outside, but inside you, you and I know how bad we are. And uh, it's also a sword. So when God takes that cross and he thrusts it into the ground as well as piercing our sin debt, he also crushes Satan's head. 
Satan is still alive, he's still moving, but he's like a snake whose head has been crushed. His tail is still moving, but he's done. He's dying. He's defeated. He's destroyed and destined for death. And when Jesus hangs on the cross there, he hangs there naked. Now, can someone tell me, please, why does he hang there naked? Surely that wasn't part of the plan. Uh, Don't I read in the Bible that he came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and, uh, you know, cleanse us from sin? But why does he have to hang there naked? He could have said, no, you can't have my clothing. But he hangs there naked. Okay, anyone going to give me any answer? Why does he hang there naked? Going, going. Clothing in scripture is a symbol of righteousness. And so when the crucifiers take off his garment, he willingly lets them go. And it's a symbol to you and me that even his crucifiers could have access to his raiment of righteousness. And so the exodus that we mentioned earlier, the exodus where the Israelites came out of Egypt, pointed forward to this event. That's the ultimate point that it made. It pointed to the cross. And so, the simple question is, what is the message for today? All right? So, I'm going to guess and say that if you go home this afternoon and someone says, well, what did the crazy speaker talk to you about today? You're going to say, Ah, oh, um, uh, not, not sure really. He said this and that. <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> I'll tell you what the crazy speaker said. The message for today for you and to me is go home and in liberty enjoy your lunch. Did you get it? I'm sure you don't. Go home and in liberty enjoy your lunch. That's the invitation. In other words, none of us are commanded to go home and make bricks. God has abandoned that practice. He has got rid of this back-breaking burden of making bricks. Pharaoh is dead. Christ is alive. You and I are free. Free. Go home and in liberty and enjoy your lunch. And then, of course, at the cross, when he said that one word, it is finished, it's one word in Greek, he says it with a loud voice, with a loud voice. He's saying to us, the work is done and the victory is won. What does that mean? It means this. You and I are often cheesed off with life. We want to give up. We want to quit. Had a gutful, had enough. I want to throw in the towel. And whenever you and I feel like that, and it'll be more than once, more than once with me, it's been often. Today, we are urged to open our eyes and see our richness in Christ. His victory credited to our account, and it is ours as though we have lived it. And so let's not go home with the attitude that we're going to make bricks, but let's go home and sing and dance. That's it. Sing and dance and rejoice in the one 
who longs to rejoice over us with singing. You remember, Jacob said, All these things are against me. They weren't, they were for him. The children of Israel were terrified. We want to go back. Take me back to Egypt. But no, God said, No. You know what God said? He said this Don't concentrate on your fears and don't highlight your temptations. But go forward. Go forward. Go forward. He didn't say quit, give up, throw in the towel, go forward. Why? Because heaven came down. And when heaven came down, heaven has moved us from dust and death to deliverance and a wonderful destiny. That's for you and for me. Heaven came down means that God's promises are here. God is at the helm. The helm, that's God promised help. And this promise of help gives us hope. The hope of our home. Our home is heaven. And the promise of homeland should be a highlight that is sweeter than honey. And so, heaven came down to help us up, to lift us up, and one day, take us up. And as we come near to the end of our time together, I like this statement on the last page of the Great Controversy. Uh, you know the statement, but let's read it again. The Great Controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. Can you take me there? <laughs> That's where I want to go. Can I take a taxi there now, today? That's where I want to go. It is here, it is here in the statement that we've just read that God will take away our hurry and our worry and our bury and he'll change it to blessedness, holiness and happiness. What kind of happiness? This kind, page before, with unutterable delight. Oh, give me that. I like this. I can't explain it. It doesn't matter what words are used, they're not good enough. With unutterable delight, the children of earth enter into the joy and wisdom of unfallen beings. That's it. Heaven came down to give us such a future. Let's say it again before we go home. All there is today is not all there is. There's something more, something wonderful, something fantastic. Well, in closing, I'd like to have my final say and then I'll allow God to have his final say. My final say would be, thank you God for this wonderful promise that a day will come when I'll get rid of my anxiousness, my fear, the thought of getting sick and, and dying and all these negatives. Thank you for that promise. But right now, God, I feel like the children of Israel. I feel discouraged. I feel afraid. I'm often terrified 
and I can't see a way out. And I'm tempted to go back, back to Egypt, back to slavery. And God says to you and to me, no, I didn't ask you to go back. I didn't ask you to stop. I didn't ask you to quit. This is what he's saying. Whatever your circumstances are right now, whatever your circumstances are right now, come and follow me and go forward and go forward. And the final thing that I'm saying is, yes, God, I want to do that, but I'm afraid. And it's not coming up, but it will in a minute. I'm afraid. And this is God's final statement to you and to me today before we go home. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Yes, you and I want to quit. We want to give up. We want to throw in the towel. Life is no good. It's not fair. If anyone comes up to me and says life is not fair, I'll say you're absolutely right. It ain't. It's not fair. But whatever your circumstances is, Jesus said, come and follow me. Don't put your life in park. Don't put it in neutral. Never ever put it in reverse. But put it in drive. Put it in drive and go forward because I will go with you wherever you go. Amen. All right, we are going to sing our final hymn now, 623. Thank you.